few years after starring in Greece, the actor and singer Olivia Newton-John released the hit song Physical. We'll be talking more about getting physical later. Earlier this year, in August, she died, aged 73, from secondary breast cancer. Her cancer was metastatic, which means it spread to other parts of her body. Olivia Newton-John was first diagnosed in 1992. She was in her early 40s. After her first treatment back in the 1990s, Newton-John had had no symptoms of breast cancer until 2013. That's 21 years after her initial diagnosis. She survived that first recurrence, but she had another recurrence in her spine five years ago. Stories like this are not uncommon among people who have breast cancer. 10 years after diagnosis, six out of seven people with the condition will remain free of secondary metastatic breast cancer. But unfortunately, one in seven will find that their cancer has returned in distant places like the bone, brain and lungs. So why does cancer return in some people and not others? This is In Conversation from Medical News Today. I'm Dr. Hilary Guite. Today we'll be exploring secondary breast cancer and why it manages to escape detection and treatment. We'll delve into our increasing knowledge from the cell surface right the way down to the genetic structure of the cancer. Can anything be done to reduce the risk of breast cancer returning? Before we begin today's conversation, our reporter, Sophie Smith, whose mother died from breast cancer, talked to some friends and family about what they understand about it, how it spreads, and why it can come back years later. Do you think all the cells in breast cancer are the same? No. No. Yes. I wouldn't think so. So when you're thinking about breast cancer, and the breast cancer cells, how do you think they create secondary tumours in distant places like brain and bone? I think that it travels through the bloodstream and can affect many other tissues surrounding that. Also, there's lymph nodes, which is where your immune system cells go. The breast is very well connected in that upper region of your body. Because they spread through the lymphatic system and other organs of the body. Um, I don't know. I would think that they travel along lines such as your lymph glands or your blood system or, you know, various ways like that. So some people like Olivia Newton-John, who died recently from breast cancer that came back after over two decades, how do you think that happened? Oh, either it could be another mutation, which is very like rare, or it could be that when they got rid of all the cancer, they didn't get rid of everything and there were still remnants and that just allowed to grow over like decades and just wasn't seen or it changed to a new type of cancer. Well, the cancer comes back because the cancerous cells are able to move throughout the body using the various channels by which cells move around, lymphatic system, blood systems, and can reach into 
parts of the body get past the blood-brain barrier, for example, into the brain and into bones. But I'm not quite sure how it happens because I'm not a scientist. Um, it wasn't destroyed by the therapy. I would think that it probably lies dormant in a sense or that some people perhaps inherit something that makes it more prevalent in them. So do you think breast cancer can truly be cured? I hope so. I think that it can never be prevented, but I think it can be cured, hopefully. Yes, I do. Yes, if the tumour is physically removed from the body. I assume not, but I assume that as we understand cancers a lot better, we might use preventative methods or at least start to address the causes of it. Thank you, Sophie, and her friends and family. Secondary breast cancer is a difficult subject to discuss. No one really wants to think about it, especially as good news is ever emerging about the success of treatment for most women with the disease. One woman who's not been afraid to talk about her two diagnoses of breast cancer is Dr Liz O'Riordan. I was a consultant breast surgeon in the UK who was diagnosed with stage 3 breast cancer age 40. I then had a local regional recurrence on my chest wall three years later and I now write and talk to promote breast cancer awareness and education. Dr Liz O'Riordan, thank you for joining me in conversation. Thank you for having us. Also joining me in conversation is... Hi, I'm Rachel Natchajan and I'm a researcher working on breast cancer. My lab focuses on understanding what drives therapy resistance and in particular, we look at the genetic makeup and also looking at the tumour microenvironment as well. So how those interact with the immune cells and how that affects response to different therapies. As well as our podcast regular from Medical News Today. Hi, my name is Maria Kohut. I'm the features editor at Medical News Today, and I'm very pleased to welcome you both on the In Conversation podcast. Welcome, everyone. Liz, can I start with you? Just three years after your surgery for breast cancer, you found another lump. Can you talk us through what happened? So I'd had chemotherapy, a mastectomy and radiotherapy, and had an awful lot of pain in my implant reconstruction from the radiotherapy. I'd had a capsulectomy to try and free all the scar tissue, but it was really painful and I was planning to just finally go flat. And I'd had a lot of knotty scar tissue in my armpit. I'd had a frozen shoulder. I'd had a lot of cording. I'd been having physio on it every two weeks for two years. And when I went to see my surgeon, she said, let's just get a scan of this just to be on the safe side. Neither of us were expecting anything. We're both consultant breast surgeons. And it turned out that it was a two and a half centimeter local regional recurrence on my chest wall. And that was a shock. And it was also really hard because a local regional recurrence is relatively rare. It only happens in 1% to 3% of women who've had a mastectomy. So there aren't the trials. There isn't anything to Google. There are very few of you. And that meant having more surgery and having to decide whether to have another course of radiotherapy to an area that was fully treated before with the risks of really quite severe side effects that would stop my left arm working. And I went through with everything. I had it removed. And as a consequence, my left arm didn't work properly. So I had to quit operating as a breast surgeon. And that also meant living with the fear that I'm much more likely to get a formal distant recurrence having had an early local recurrence. You mentioned that you had stage three cancer. Can you explain what that is? Basically, the higher the stage, the higher the cancer, the higher risk of it coming back. I had a sneaky cancer. 
Mine was not seen on a mammogram. It was two and a half centimeters on an ultrasound. And I just thought it was a cyst and I have expert hands. An MRI showed it was actually six centimeters of mixed ductal and lobular cancer, ER positive, HER2 negative. I had neoadjuvant chemotherapy to shrink it down because it was big and it completely disappeared on the MRI. But because I've got small breasts, I had a mastectomy and that showed there was actually 13 centimeters of residual lobular cancer left in my breast and two of my sentinel lymph nodes were positive, having had a negative scan at the start because we know chemo doesn't work very well for lobular cancer. Gosh, so unpicking some of that really horrible sounding types of cancer. Can I bring Rachel in here? When you hear that, given the work of your research lab, what do you think? I mean, the type of breast cancer Liz, you know, has had lobular breast cancer is one of the rarer types. And I think it's important at this point to emphasise that breast cancer isn't just one disease, it's a collection of multiple diseases. So Liz was saying her lobular breast cancer was ER positive, HER2 negative. So it's positive for the estrogen receptor, which means the cells in the cancer express estrogen, which means in general, you'd be then eligible for estrogen deprivation therapy. So people may have heard of drugs like tamoxifen, aromatase inhibitors, they all work to suppress signaling of estrogen, which then drives the cells to keep dividing, keep proliferating. So that's one side. And then Liz, your cancer is HER2 negative. Then HER2 is another gene that's in some breast cancers is highly expressed. So the cells have lots of this protein circulating around and that drives how they grow, makes them more aggressive. But now there are therapies that suppress that growth, anti-HER2 therapies. So things like Herceptin, people may have heard of. So it's really important to work out which type of receptors your individual cancer has, as what you're saying is that determines your treatment and your outlook. But pathologists also look at the cancer through the microscope. So what are they looking for there? So in the vast majority of women and men diagnosed with breast cancer, their cells stick together. And so they're called ductal cancers. Whereas in some occasions, like Liz was saying with hers, she has a lobular breast cancer. That's where there's a defect in a protein called e-cadherin. So it makes the cells not stick together. They, they grow in what we call single files. And that means they're less likely to be picked up on normal mammograms because they don't form this solid mass. And there's differences in those type of breast cancers compared to the positive ductal breast cancers, aside from the discohesion that they show in the cell-to-cell contacts, which means they move more freely and they spread to other parts of the body So what you're saying there is that the microscopic architecture of the cancer, the way in which the cells stick together in ductal cancer, but don't in lobular cancer, that impacts on how easily the breast cancer spreads to other parts of the body. But I understand there's another layer of complexity about breast cancer, and that's at the level of the genetics of the tumour. Can you tell us more about that? You know, in terms of the genetics what's going on at the dna level they look different as well some lobular cancers have higher frequencies and mutations in different genes and we think some of this causes those cancers not to respond so well to certain therapies particularly long term so liz was saying you know lobular breast cancers don't really you don't really respond that well to chemotherapy which is true but also longer term endocrine therapy treatments as well. So, you know, the treatments that target the estrogen receptor signaling. So patients that tend to have 
lobular breast cancer tend to do worse on those therapies as well. So we've talked about these three levels of complexity of breast cancers, the receptors, the architecture of the tumour and the mutations in the genes within the tumour. And all of those work together to influence how each person will respond to treatment and how likely they are to produce a recurrence in the future. So I understand the aim now is to give a more personalised form of treatment depending on your own particular type of breast cancer. One of the questions I've got here, listening to Liz's story, is that, Liz, you've had chemotherapy, hormonal therapy, radiotherapy, specifically for your cancer. Yeah. Can I ask Rachel, can you tell us why or how somehow some breast cancer cells escape that level of treatment? Yeah, so that's a difficult question to to answer, but we do have some clues. For instance, the selective pressure of the therapy itself can drive resistance. So can you tell us a bit more about what does that mean, selective pressure? So because all cancers in general, the cells are dividing quickly and they have lots of alterations in the DNA that help drive cells to divide. But when the cells are exposed to a particular treatment, then they can evolve over time and acquire new alterations in their DNA. So some of them will respond and others will escape. Well, they, they could be quite slow growing because often chemotherapy and radiotherapy target cells that are growing and dividing quickly, but there may be slower cancer cells that haven't found a friend. And because their competition has gone, the fast cells have died, those slower growing cells may mutate and start to grow again. And, and do some of them grow so slowly that they could be thought to be asleep or dormant? Yes, um, that's exactly that. And dormancy is thought to contribute to recurrence many years later. And so that's one of the things about breast cancer. It's a particular cancer where you can have a very long period of time between initial diagnosis and recurrence. Um, what is it then that makes some cells lie dormant and some divide rapidly? So we don't really know the answer to that question. And that's what a lot of research is trying to focus on. Right. And those cells, those dormant cells, are they part of the original cluster of cells that form the cancer or may they have arisen independently of the original cell? I think we assume any cancer that is invasive has the ability to spread and move around the body. And any woman with an invasive cancer may have a couple of cells that have left that cancer and have gone into the lymph or the blood. The surgery is removing all the physical cancer that we can see. And the aim of chemo and radiotherapy and hormone treatments is to mop up any of those little cells floating around the body. So they've come from the original breast cancer. They're often dormant. They may start to wake up for whatever reason. And as they make up, they can further mutate and change. So they may have very different receptors to the original breast cancer, but they have come from that original tumour. Maria, you wanted to ask a question. Yeah, I was just curious, how recent is this knowledge, understanding that some cancer cells can actually escape treatment? I was wondering if, I don't know, Liz, when you started your career as a surgeon, that was a well-known thing, or is that something that surgeons and researchers have only learned more recently? We've known for many, many years that breast cancer can come back months, years down the line. We don't know why. And it's very hard to research it when many women have no symptoms. There aren't cells you can see on a CT scan. You're just waiting for some woman like Olivia Newton-John did to say, oh, I've got back pain. I had cancer 20 years ago. 
We've known it for a long, long time. We just don't know what triggers that. So, Rachel, back to you. So we now know that there's kind of multitude of different cell types which differentiate between people with breast cancer. And some of those can go and cite themselves elsewhere. What are the characteristics of the distant spread that makes some cells grow another tumour, become a metastasis, and other cells they won't take? What do we know about the environment around the cancer? That's another very good question that we don't really know the answer to. But there is theories that there's a kind of crosstalk. The cancer cells are speaking to some of the cells within those different environments and sort of some signaling going on. There's only a couple of single cells present in the bone or or something at some point can, can wake up and start making more copies of themselves and proliferating. I think that's a problem. And what about the microenvironment in the tumour? What's actually happening within that environment that's encouraging growth? I mean, cancer cells, they, and this is a newer area of research, they become metastatic. They tend to evade the immune system. So they have ways of doing that by actually changing their genetics, expressing different types of proteins, so they become undetected. And then they actually can co-opt other types of immune cells that help them grow. And I wonder whether or not several different cancer cell lines become established. So not necessarily from the primary. I think most breast cancers are homogenous. The vast majority of cells are all ER positive, HER2 negative. They're all lobular. And whether they start and there's one dominant clone that takes over, but most breast cancers are homogenous when they're looked at under the microscope. They're not a mixture of three or four different cancers. I think that's right, Rachel, isn't it? When you look at them under the microscope with those gross high-level markers, yes, but actually at a genetic level. And this is what we can start to discern with new technologies looking at single cell genomics, which is something that, that we're doing. Some of them actually can look quite different. So some of them may be what we call cancer stem cells. They're not stem cells in the sense that they can differentiate into you know, normal cells that do a normal function in your body, but they might be able to keep differentiating into other cancer cells and, and keep on going. So we are starting to see some differences in subpopulations within a, within the tumour. So as we get more granular in our understanding of a cancer, it's becoming more complex. What does that understanding mean for our understanding of the disease? I mean, if we can start to predict which cells that have particular genomic alterations in them that may lie in a particular area of the tumour that's fueled by more food, for instance, then maybe we can start to predict if those cells might escape. So this is looking at the primary tumour. Um, when, when we get diagnosed, maybe we can predict if they have the ability to escape. Or I guess we could see single mutations that mean that cell is more likely to respond to estrogen than another cancer. So it may mean we can tailor the treatments we have. At the moment, we give chemotherapy based on a variety of risk factors, but we may be able to say genetically, you've got that SNP mutation, that means you won't respond. So we know we don't need to give it to you. So we can give people more tailored treatment to their personal phenotype of the cancer. Yeah. Can I just add, going back to the point I made earlier about cancers can evolve when they are exposed to a particular therapy. So a nice example is 
ER positive breast cancer, when a patient receives aromatase inhibitors in particular, which is a certain type of therapy that suppresses the signaling of estrogen, a proportion of those patients develop mutations in the gene that makes the protein for estrogen. And that specifically only arises when the patient has endocrine therapy. So you won't see that before in the primary tumor before the woman gets any therapy. So some of these alterations do arise during treatment. And then they are themselves predictive of long-term outcome response. Then you can come in and, t- and tailor the, the treatment at that point. You've been talking a lot about having more, you know, specific, individually tailored treatments for breast cancer. Are we ever going to be able to say we have a cure for breast cancer, knowing that there are so many different types and so many different physiologies on the one hand? Because I often hear this phrase when I read about stories of treatments, oh, they've defeated breast cancer. But is that, to what extent is that true? Because it's not really gone, is it? And will we ever get there? I mean, I think the overall survival rate for women and men that are diagnosed these days is, is much better on the whole compared to 50 years ago. And that's what people refer to, that breast cancer is cured. But by no means is it because women and men still die of the disease. And that's the problem. And it affects so many people that the numbers are still large. And I think there are so many different types of breast cancer. So you've got ER positive, negative, HER2 positive, negative, lobular ductal, triple negative, the different complications. And when they mutate and come back, triple negative can suddenly develop ER positive cancers and ER positive METs can develop resistance. We may cure one particular type of breast cancer in the future, but I think at the moment we are a long way off, sadly. Can I come back to, you were talking about the cancer stem cells. Stem cells are cells that have a potential to become different things, which is what Liz was talking about there, that they can change the receptor type. But what do you think the chances are for treatment in the future to actually try and encourage those cancer stem cells to decide what they're going to be and then they can be treated? Whereas once they're still in that cancer stem cell phase, they could go any way and it's really hard to know how to target the treatment. Rachel, what, what do you think about that? Yeah, so there is a possibility of doing that. But then I think at the cancer stem cell level, they're what we call plastic, so they can change quite easily again. So the counter argument could be that we might be chasing our tails all the time with that one. Okay, so you push them into something and then they go back again. Cancer doesn't really obey the rules, does it? No. <laughs> You can't control a cancer cell saying, oi, you, stop developing resistance to aromatase inhibitors. Yes. There are some drugs being developed called epigenetic modulators that are trying to do exactly that. So change the epigenetic state. So it's not changing the mutations, which are hard encoded at the DNA level, but it's another regulatory level that changes gene expression. But it's, it's reversible. That's the problem. So it could be a possibility in combination with other therapies. Explain a little bit more about that epigenetic control. So it's a mechanism a cell has that looks genetically identical. It's a way of the cells looking different. So at the DNA level and the chromosomes and the sequence of the DNA is exactly the same on the base pair level. But there's modifications on what we call the chromatin, which is how the the DNA is packaged within our cell that 
help suppress or help genes become expressed. And that's how they differ. So a good example is in twins, so I'm a twin, for example, but we don't look exactly the same. But at the DNA level, we are exactly the same, but we look different. You know, our eye shapes are different and that's regulated by epigenetics. And so it can go back and forth, yeah, in a cancer cell in particular. What sort of environmental impacts will impact on the epigenetic expression? Yeah, so within a tumour, you could think about oxygen availability. So as a tumour grows, the cancer cells have to find ways of overcoming deprivation of oxygen because as the tumour gets bigger, they're further away from the blood supply, which is called hypoxia. And cancers can do that by changing the epigenetics and therefore the gene expression of, of some genes. But then once they reach a place where there's more oxygen, it will revert and they'll go back to how they were. So it's very dynamic. Gosh, I don't think most people have a concept of this. We heard quite a range of different understanding in Sophie's piece and her friends and family are very knowledgeable. Liz, you talk with many more people who have cancer. How much do you think people understand about this level of complexity? I think most people understand very little and I have a PhD in molecular oncology and I still struggle to understand it. And I think it's important that women know that their breast cancer can come back in the future. It's a really hard thing to tell a woman. You don't want to tell them when you've removed the cancer. It's really hard to say, oh, well done, you've got a great result. And did you know it could come back in two or three years time? A lot of us shy away from having those discussions and women don't realize that it can come back 20 or 30 years down the line. And I think for me, it's all about helping women reduce the risk of that happening, like exercising, like cutting down alcohol, like knowing how to check what symptoms to look out for. I think the mechanics is almost irrelevant because often it's bad luck. I used to worry about the statistics. So when my cancer came back, I had a 40% chance of being alive in 10 years and I would worry. But actually, it's 50-50. It comes back or it doesn't. It's almost out of my control. And it's how you help people live with that fear of it coming back and go forward and live their life. So I have a question to you, Liz, on that. So how do you live with the fear? without waking up every morning being petrified? Time. I think the first two or three years, every morning I'd have a headache. Is this a headache I need to worry about? Lying awake in the middle of the night, probing my body, looking for lumps. Every time someone famous dies, every time a friend dies, there's something in the paper. Oh my goodness. The guilt you feel when you don't have a recurrence and someone does, it's really, really hard. And when that letter comes through the post for your yearly mammogram, my heart rate races. It's horrible. Five years down the line, I don't think about it every day until I take my aromatase inhibitor or I look in the mirror and see the scar. But it, time is a great healer. But for a lot of women in October, Breast Cancer Awareness Month, it's incredibly triggering because it is everywhere. And some people never get over that fear. And the really scary thing is we know 5 to 10% of women are diagnosed with metastatic disease when they first come to see the doctor and they don't know they have it and they have no symptoms. And patients are told, when you have a worrying sign, go and see the doctor, but it might be too late. And it's really hard thinking, I could have Mets now, but I'm well, and I don't know. And you can't scan everybody every week of the year because it makes no sense. But it's just the mental side of it is really, really hard to deal with. Yeah. How do you deal with the, the anxiety and the chronic stress that arises out of the knowledge of, oh, I have this now? And there's nothing for it but to keep on keeping on. 
you have no choice. You just have to live. You have to deal with the side effects, the, the symptoms. You just have to live the best you can. You find a way. I've come across recently, rather than the term living with, it's putting up with and coping with. Mm. Can I move us on now to lifestyle and recovery of a sense of normality? What have you found, Liz, has helped you most? I think the biggest thing for me was talking to other women to find out that what I was experiencing was normal. I thought I knew what it would be like to live after breast cancer, and I had no idea. The depression, anxiety that can hit years down the line, the massive impact on your sex life, realizing I was legally disabled, so I had rights when it came to returning to work. How do you live with the body image? I know so many women who've wanted their husbands to divorce them and marry someone with two healthy breasts and a libido. The guilt that you feel, it has such a huge impact on everything, your sexuality, your femininity. I lost my fertility. To me, it was just remove a breast cancer, pretty scar, off you go, I've done a good job. And it, by sharing what the normality is like so other women know they're not alone and encouraging them that they can have a life and it will be different. It's never back to normal. I think the hard thing is, so all four of us could have metastatic cancer and no one would know. No one sees the chronic pain that I deal with, the scars. They don't see what's going on inside and your family want you to move on with their life. Friends forget because you look great. And it's really hard when you're struggling to find other people to go to. And that's where the breast cancer community have been incredible at helping people share and learn what's normal and what's not. But there are a lot of scary things out there. There's a lot of misinformation. And I think we need to be careful how we help women understand who to believe and who not to. And how do you cope with the exhaustion afterwards? I mean, you, you do a lot of exercise. Yeah. How does that work when you just don't feel like doing it? I don't know how it works scientifically, but exercise is the best treatment for fatigue. It's been proven in trials. And a lot of people say, but how does exercise work on a mitochondrial basis? Forget about it. You take paracetamol without wanting to know how it works in the liver. Exercise works. It improves all the side effects. And it's the last thing you want to do when you're fatigued, but going for a walk every day during chemo will have a massive impact on how you feel. But it's really hard to put your trainers on and drag yourself out the door. Maria, you've been looking into consensus statements around recurrence and exercise. What have you found from your reporting? Oh, there's a lot out there. But from some of the more recent reviews of the literature and trials, it's what Liz said that exercise does help with specifically fatigue. For instance, looking at evidence from the American Society of Clinical Oncology, according to them, it doesn't seem to help so much with other symptoms of breast cancer, if I'm not much mistaken. I don't know what Liz could tell us about that. But it does also seem to help reduce the risk of breast cancer in the first place. What's less known and less understood are the mechanisms through which that might happen. So I don't know if either of you have any hypothesis about that. I don't know. And I don't think scientists know exactly yet. But it's free. It does help all the side effects of chemotherapy. It helps with the nausea, the fatigue, the hot flushes. It's the best thing for the menopause, the hot flushes, the night sweats, the brain fog. It should almost be a contract. The doctors will treat you the best they can and you exercise to look after your body. And it's something patients have control over as well. So both the American Society of Clinical Oncology and the European Society for Medical Oncology do advise 
doctors to suggest this to people who are going or have gone through breast cancer treatment um, that they should exercise. However, the European Society for Medical Oncology, they also note that it's not always straightforward, that some people simply don't have, you know, the, the physical energy anymore after breast cancer treatment to get back into exercise. So it's a bit more complicated. You can't just jump back into it and hit those goals set in the guidelines. So I know you have a lot of experience with that. How do you get back into it and what's what's best for people? So the guidelines suggest that you should be doing half an hour of aerobic exercise three times a week to start with. And that means just getting your heart rate up. And during chemo, it may be walking 200 yards, stopping to spit and vomit. But getting your heart rate up, you do as much as you can, and then you'll see it build up, you'll get fitter. And it does take time to build that fitness up. The second thing you need to do, which is almost more important, especially people with metastatic cancer, is resistance exercise weight training that can be done at home with resistance bands or just doing squats and lunges when the kettle's boiling. You can go up and down stairs. You can do five minutes here or there. It improves bone health. It improves the muscles. That's almost more important than aerobic exercise. And it's almost making a commitment to yourself. Anybody can do it. It's just saying, right, I'm going to start. Today's the day. Thank you, everyone, for sharing what you know. Are there any final comments anyone wants to make? Rachel? I'd just say you know, the best thing is to get diagnosed early so the cancer's treatable. There's a lot of movement in that area in terms of research, um, you know, looking at what we call blood-based biomarkers monitoring through a blood draw. So, you know, as new technology moves on and on, we can start to detect people's cancers much earlier on. And then, you know, eventually the hope is that we can become part of the natural screening process and we can pick up alterations very early on, before you see anything occult on a mammogram or MRI scan. That is the goal. And I think it's reminding every woman that you have to check your breasts. I never did. I'm a consultant breast surgeon. I never checked my breasts. It was only in October. And it's the one thing that you have. So do it every month and get used to what's normal. And Maria? I think I'm just getting into the habit of actually checking on a regular basis and trying to do it correctly, just, just in case just to be on the safe side. Great. We should all make a, a pledge. Um, choose a time of the month and then just check our breasts. And men. And men, yes, yes. Dr Liz O'Riordan, Dr Rachel Natrajan, Maria Kahoot, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thanks also to our reporter for this episode, Sophie Smith. And of course, thank you for listening. You can read more about secondary breast cancer on medicalnewstoday.com. Maria has written a feature to accompany this podcast. We'll be in conversation again next month, talking about erectile dysfunction. See you then. I'm Dr. Hilary Geit, and this is a High Vis Radio production for Medical News Today. <laughs>